Hello and welcome to another episode of James Wonder and Friends. My name's James Page from MI6 and MI6HQ.com. Um, this week, James Bond's stunt double is busy jumping off a bridge in a bad wig, so he can't be with us this week. Um, <laughs> so I'm your standing host. Um, and with us this week, we have regulars David Lee and Bill Koenig, and we are joined for the first time, blessed with his presence, Joe Darlington from Being James Bond. Thank you. Uh, so would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Hi, uh, David Lee here. I run uh, the JamesBondDossier.com. Uh, I'm also author of The Complete Guide to the Drinks of James Bond. Uh, and I'm Bill Koenig. I run the blog called The Spy Command. I also have some other websites, one of which is The Bond 25 Timeline, which I'm still calling that, which I had a lot of entries this week because of uh, uh, the title coming out, which we'll discuss. Uh, I am Joseph Darlington, and I do a humble little podcast and uh, YouTube channel called Being James Bond, and I am also the author of the even more humble little book called Being James Bond, Volume 1. Awesome. Um, just to introduce yourself to our audience, uh, Joe, if we like, could we, do you want to talk for a minute or two about um, your book and how that came about and what it's about? Yeah, well, the uh, Being James Bond started out as a podcast in late 2006. In fact, my first episode was literally a week before the release of Casino Royale. Uh, it's been going strong ever since. Uh, I kind of gradually started uh, joining the 21st century and doing some YouTube videos as well. Uh, and the book being James Bond Volume 1 is really kind of uh, something I'd, I really was working on from the beginning. Uh, and it's, uh, again, it's a humble little book about uh, some of the things that James Bond does. And for all of us who like to mimic James Bond, a uh, little how-to on a lot of things that Bond knows how to do and things he seems to know very well, which is almost everything. But I, I picked a, a chunk of things for the first volume. Yeah, uh, Joe, I I was a, a listener of yours back. I, I think I picked it up in 2007 or 2008. And uh, it's I, I used to listen to a, a hell of a lot of podcasts back in those days, not so many these but um, yours was one of the only Bond ones, if not the only Bond ones that I could find at the time. And, uh, and I, I couldn't believe it when I, when I found it. And uh, I, I just, uh, um, all the published episodes, I just went straight through. Oh, thank you, David. I appreciate that. Yeah, we, I had a nice little claim to fame for a while there. I, th I think it's now the oldest podcast because the few that were around back then uh, in, in kind of the infancy of podcasting, I think most of them have sort of fallen to the wayside. So, uh, yeah, you know, again, I can't claim the fame to many things, but I, I think I am the oldest Bond podcast right now. Yeah, and I remember when you released your book as well because I bought it. Oh, beautiful. You're the one. Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure somebody else did too. Well, and also in terms of your YouTube YouTube channel, I just want to say it's uh, very slickly edited and uh, very good presentation. Thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm very anal about certain things and uh, – so I, I, I do try to keep it rather polished, you know, not as polished as many, but uh, I try I do what I can. But so thank you. I appreciate that. I'm glad I'm glad somebody's uh, noticing it. This is a good time, I think, to um, talk about um the title announcement that we had on a random Tuesday, um, which felt like a Wednesday because I made that mistake on Twitter. I saw I saw um, somebody else made the same mistake. 
Yes. <laughs> it, it just felt random. like a Wednesday. Yeah. It felt like a Wednesday. Um, and we should, um, regular listeners um, will know that we actually talked about No Time to Die as being a potential title a month before. Um, David, yes. you're going to take your lap of honor on that one. <laughs> well, um, you know, well, what can I say? It, uh, I took a... Um, a pint of uh, of a Vespa martini down that and astrally projected into Barbara Broccoli's brain. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's how it works. Yeah, that's how it works. Yeah. Uh, now I I was a, I was a bit surprised when I saw the um, uh, the title had been announced and, and exactly what it was because um, yeah that's exactly what I said and um, I, I told I told Miriam my wife about that that title back um a month ago and she said oh yeah well what a good title for a bond film and uh so uh, well so and a lot of people seem to like it so uh yeah i was there first next time you just got to register the domain name right yeah yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah but uh, just- didn't 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 we say that um if anybody got it right you all paid me 500 dollars I can't remember that conversation. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what were you guys' first takes, other than the spooky coincidence? Um, what were your feelings about it? Well, of course, my first thought was, hey, wait a minute. I said it'd be out in August on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and I was the only one. Because you, right. <laughs> you guys almost True. talked me out of it, and then I said... Well, no, I'll stick with August just because I'm amused that I'm the most optimistic on the panel about this. But... <laughs> yeah, well done, Phil. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, one thought I had was, um, gee, they, they it took them four. You know, it was going to be a, a reason to die, and so we're going to work hard for month. You know, four months of this, and we changed two words. Okay. Well, all right. Um, I guess that's why those movie executives get paid the big bucks. I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm expecting a credit on on the film. Just uh, thanks to David Lee for the title. It, it, it'll be buried in the end in the end titles. You know, the long yeah. crawl will be part of these. You know, special thanks to the caterers. Special thanks to the <laughs> special thanks all the to David cons- Lee. all the construction crews. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, what was your take on it? Is it does it how does it land? How did it land with you um, as a Bondian title? Uh, I like it a lot. I will say that um, probably like a lot of us overthinkers, I you know I sort of went uh, both ways with it. Uh, on one hand, I was pretty thrilled that we were finally getting you know one of those classic Bond titles that we got in the eighties and nineties. Uh, the other part of me sort of envisioned like a, a, a fishbowl sitting on somebody's desk over at Eon with uh, pieces of paper. You know, with killed, die, <laughs> live, and uh, some some increment of time, and, uh, just in case of emergency, we could just dive in here and put together a title real fast. Um, but that that also could be very dismissive because I don't know yet how it might relate to the actual story, the plot. Um, I've heard rumors. I don't know if I give it any credence yet. But um, so yeah. But overall, overall, I think it's a pretty good title. Well, I thought. Fine. It, you know, it, it's in, in fact, in some ways, it's almost like maybe they were overthinking it for a while. Um, and it's like, you know what? At the end of the day, just go with something. I mean, it sounds sounds perfectly fine to me. 
I mean, here's the other thing. For me, like, I don't go to a movie because of a title. I suppose if they picked a really bad title, <laughs> I might not go, but this is fine. You know, it's, it's yeah. I don't, I don't think a bad title hurts Spectre at all, so I, I'm not really uh, – I hear what you're saying. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I – well, I, well, if they had named it Painful Rectal Itch, that might have turned some stuff off. <laughs> true. 126 is. <laughs> I mean, for example, okay, Avengers Endgame. Yeah, that's, that's an okay title. Like, I mean, all those... They may as well have called it Avengers, this is the last movie. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, 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 it wasn't a decisive factor in all those people going to see the movie, so... Well, I, I think well, we knew that you know, um, a reason to die was the working title for a long time. So, for it to be a playoff, that I don't think we were surprised um, to be a variation. And I think that Joe, as you mentioned, I think that there is some there is some way of hanging it into the story. Otherwise, they wouldn't have come up with a reason to die in the first place to do the different variations. And you know, the the universal glitch in their press release of it called, being called a data die for a little bit. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I checked um, to see if they'd um, register that domain as well, but uh, it, it wasn't. There's a popular fan theory that it's a deliberate homage to Cubby Broccoli because he and Irving Allen did a 1958 war film by that title, at least by that title in the UK. Here in the States, it was called Tank Force. So uh, a lot of their films seem to have dual titles in the UK and the US. Yeah, the the weird thing is when I when I um, made my um, as it was prediction, uh, yeah, I I didn't even know of that film. You know, I I had totally forgotten it until I saw these predict or people making the case it was an homage, and they were describing us, and and I even asked one of them on uh, Twitter. I said, "Are you talking about Tank Force?" And um, I mean, I, I've never seen it all the way through, but like in the early 70s, I was like visiting some relatives out in Iowa and like it was Saturday night. It was like the late show on the local TV sh- TV station and I'm seeing this these titles and then all of a sudden I'm starting to see all these Bond crew member names. I'm like, you know, I, I saw like a Richard Maybaum, Terrence Young credit for the script and Ted Moore for the photography. Like, well, that's funny. And then I see Broccoli's name with Irving Allen as, as uh, executive producers, I think. So, and, and I watched a little bit of the movie and, you know, never saw any of it ever again. And then like, Oh, this is, you know, big, like I said, it's a big fan theory right now. So like, who knows? Yeah. I wonder if when bomb 26 comes around, whether the rumors are all going to be scraping Warwick films titles now. <laughs> to see all the other ones that they could reuse. <laughs> Paratrooper. L below zero. You, you know, uh, Bill, you mentioned yeah. something. You said something before about how it, it probably will relate to the plot. And I agree with that. That's probably the case in some respect. But I guess that there's, a, there's also the cynical side of me that sort of wonders, do they, do they keep the titles so generic that – no matter how you look at it, it can sort of be worked into the plot somehow. As, as an example, uh, certainly not my favorite movie, but one of my favorite post-Fleming titles has always been Die Another Day, which I always thought was terrific because, again, it has that very Fleming-esque uh, vibe to it because it's, you know, again, it's a takeoff on a, on a very recognizable saying, you live to die another day. Uh, and I kind of feel like, again, that's a title that it, it's simple and generic enough that some way you can easily work it into the plot. 
Um, frankly, I always, I've always felt with that film that the general should have been the one to say it to James Bond right before he goes across the bridge, which I feel like would have worked pretty well because then when Bond says it again later, there's some familiarity. Uh, it also yeah. sort of lets you kind of, oh, this general is not so bad after all, you know, kind of a thing. Uh, but again, having said that, that is, again, a pretty generic title that you probably could have used whenever and worked it into the plot somehow. So, yeah, I mean, like I said, I mean, I do like this plot. I do like the fact that it is possibly an homage and possibly relating to the plot. But again, also generic enough that it could have worked probably anywhere. Yeah, I, I, I can I, I can see uh, it's one of the, the things that I, I thought of when I when I when I did uh, recover from the shock of, of uh, hearing or understanding what the name was, but I, I thought I, I can just hear Bond saying it's no time to die. And I, was about to say, I was about to say one reason I'm maybe a little skeptical about it being an homage to Cubby is because, well, if it's an homage to Cubby, why, why didn't you think of that four months ago? Um, yeah. Right. You know, you know, but, maybe, maybe, maybe they haven't actually remembered that yet. <laughs> Maybe you know, I, I don't know. I mean, regardless, it's a fine title. You know, it's it's you know it, it it fits a Bond mood and somebody like again, this might be like overthinking it. Some I I, I saw some fan reaction. Well, it reminds me more of a Gardner title than a Fleming title. It's like mm. it sounds like a it sounds like a basic James Bond title, and you know, it's like mm. let's move on. You know, I had that same vibe, too, by the way. I kind of felt like I, I kind of feel like all the post Flemings, they tend to sort of have like almost a fan fiction vibe to it where they're more tributes to Fleming. Because I, I sort of went back and looked at my bookshelf and I sort of realized, you know, I, I know. It, I mean, we've all probably noticed that pretty much since 1985, every other Bond film for a while had Killer Die in the title. And when you right. look at the original Flemings, you, you notice like he didn't really use Killer Die nearly as right. much as I think people think he did. In fact, I can only count one die, and I think there was one kill if you include the short stories. And I, I oddly, I noticed that he actually uses the word love more than any of those. Right. Uh, so, yeah, uh, yeah good, sort of good point. Like, right? And I mean, also, it's so. Yeah. I was about to say, with the continuation novels, it's not like the authors had the say. They could recommend titles, but, mm. you know, it, it's Ben Glibrow's now Ian Fleming Publications had the final say on the titles. And I know, I mean, Raymond Benson has been pretty circumspect about this. He hasn't said a lot publicly, but I know that right. like he recommended, um, I believe for his first continuation novel, I believe his recommendation was no tears for Hong Kong, which became right. minus 10. Um, I don't know if he recommended high time to kill, which I personally feel is his best continuation novel of the bond series. But, Agreed. um, but but you know he I know he didn't have control over the titles. I don't know about Gardner. Um, well, yeah, when we spoke to John Gardner years ago, um, he told us that they basically had a bucket of titles for every book, and the the two publishers, the UK and the US, would get together and they'd kind of like knock them down until they were left with one that they were both okay with. Um, and he actually gave us the list. We've never published it. I'll have to dig it out sometime for our interview. But they were all. They were all generic enough that they could yeah. have been applied to any book. And 
I was remember uh, it popped into my mind, Joe, when you mentioned about how they were kind of generic. Was like I remember an interview with Seth MacFarlane years ago when he named every episode of Family Guy after some like 1950s serial. Had nothing to do with the episode, and he said like we had to stop doing it because we couldn't remember which episode was which. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like we're getting to that point with casual viewers. I think that they know it's a James Bond film, right? from the mm. title but has it got any bearing or relevance to it i think the only post fleming non-fleming title that's really um done something original uh, is probably skyfall i think that's one that you could see that being a fleming story a book and it would fit in with his um canon of titles just perfectly and it was something completely out of left field right something completely original um but we haven't that's the, that's the only one i think we've had I was about to say, in Fleming's case, I mean, he he came up with tentative titles that he changed his mind on later anyway. Um, like Moonraker was, I forget, I can't remember now. It wasn't Moonraker at the start. Um, he changed it later um, before publication, but he had some other title in mind. Live and Let Die was going to be the Undertaker's Wind. Yeah. So um, what did you guys think of the uh, the typeface? <laughs> Well, we, we were I think, I think that it. got that got that got more discussion on Twitter than the title <laughs> itself. Well, I was I was saying before we started recording, um, I, I was working from home and I was taking a, a quick walk, and suddenly, in the middle of the walk, I suddenly remembered the Love Boat. I said, "I'm going to check that out when I get back to uh, get back to my computer." And then before I did that, I remembered this. Uh, obs- well, it's yeah, it's obscure. It's a uh, unsuccessful Quinn Martin show called Banyan. And uh, I said, yeah, I better check that too. And it's like, lo and behold, they both had those that typeface. Um, Banyan was made even before The Love Boat, but it was set in the 1930s. So actually that font made sense once, actually James, I think, alerted people on Twitter that it was like a 1929 font. Mm-hmm. Um and so, like, okay, that made a lot of sense because in the case of Banyan, because it was set in the 30s, it had an Art Deco look. So, yeah, okay, I understand why they use that typeface. Again, you know, it's fine. Yeah, I, I'm not super keen on, on the typeface. I, I find these fonts difficult to read and uh, and so unnecessary. But, um, but having said that, in a way, it's kind of similar to um, the T-chest font used on some of uh, Fleming's uh, um, first yes. edition. So, um, you know, I guess it, it kind of ties in with that. I, I did see something creative on uh, social media. It was uh, an altered main title from the Love Boat, where you know where they showed all the guest stars, and it was like Jaws. <laughs> <and then> Jaws, <laughs> I thought it was Richard Keel from the Spy Who Loved Me. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's funny. Instagram. Everybody at Instagram has been having a field day with the font. Everybody's downloaded, and everybody's been uh, having a ball with it. When I saw it, you know, and this is the when, when I'm not a, a Bond nerd, I'm a graphic designer. So the graphic designer in me kind of went, oh, OK, there's there's OK. And I, it was interesting because it's obviously going for sort of a retro vibe, which obviously I kind of like. But I for some reason, it's it took me back to Diamonds of Forever. Not not before that, mm. not after that, but sort of right around that era was was what this this typeface right. reminded me of. Yeah. 
which is interesting because that's when Banyan came out. It was like a year after Diamonds Are Forever. There you go. Early, early 70s. Any other thoughts on title treatment? I, the one I picked up on instantly was they had the opportunity to do the, the OO and the O, the letter O, the letter O, and then the number seven motif again with the wording, but they didn't. But they yeah, didn't I, know, I know. I, I, yeah, I, I, I went back to have another look at it because I was thinking, was it there or was it not? And uh, I went back to it and had a, had a look, and no, it isn't there. They've got the 007 separately to the right. And uh, yeah, I, I can't work out why. Yeah, because a friend of mine, he sent me in an email, he used that font and he rearranged the, the word so you could get that 007 um, bit using that font, but you know, they didn't, they chose not to. Just one quick thought um, a lot of people, including myself, thought they would reveal the title with the teaser trailer. And obviously they decided to make it two separate events. And um, I think event is a bit of a stretch, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, the other, the other thing that I noticed was um, not a coincidence that from tomorrow never dies onwards, which was when um, Barbara Michael fully took the reins of the franchise Every title treatment since then has had the 007 logo on it, and prior to that, they didn't. Oh, mm. there's, there's some trivia yeah. for you. That is, if you look at the, because a lot of people have been putting up like um, infographics of like all the different title treatments over the years, and that is the delineation between Cubby handing over to Barbara Michael is they have the 007 logo on the title treatments. So it did look mm. a little wedged in on it on the new one. Like as an afterthought, we'll slap the 007 logo in there somewhere. But well, and also it may have been an acknowledgement that they were they weren't totally out of original Fleming titles, but they had obviously taken the 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 most famous ones by that point. And so maybe it's just a way to remind people, hey, it's a it's a James Bond movie. You haven't gotten the hint. So there you go. Right. Yeah. I I wonder how much of that is to do with the um the new international markets, especially China, when the logo yeah. is actually more impactful than whatever the translation will be of the title. Especially with when it's numbers like that. Yeah, especially if they uh, translate the title badly. Like uh, I believe they did with, with Dr. No into Chinese and uh, yeah, they translate it into something like, uh, we don't need a doctor. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so let, let's hope we've got better be translators to, now. <laughs> it'll be, I, I haven't got time to feel better. <laughs> will be. Especially <laughs> <laughs> a doctor with like two metal hands. Like, I'm sorry, Doc. I'm not really sure that those hands are <laughs> Yeah, I, I wonder if the, the, using the simple words in the title has something to play with that, that for the international markets it's easier to come up with a, a good translation of the title versus some some obscure kind of like, you know, something linguistically unique to the English. Yeah, right? I mean, the here, here in Spain, the um, I mean, the last title that needed to be translated was Quantum of Solace, but they didn't translate it. It was just called Quantum of Solace. And I, I, I don't know if that were, was uh, general in, in other markets, but uh, I, I, I did find it curious, maybe because they didn't know how to translate it. And I was about to say that um, even though they only changed a couple words, it, I have to admit, 
you know, the new title is like punchier than a reason to die. Um, yes. Not that big a change, but it's, you know, shorter, punchier. You know, I'd say it's an improvement. actually. Yeah. I mean, in terms of how it sounds and looks and everything, it's basically live and let die. Right. I mean, it's yeah. four words, four syllables, ends in die. Yeah. But I remember we talked, uh, we did an interview with Charlie Hickson about his young Bond books. And uh, we got onto the subject of titles and everything. And I think uh, his his kind of story was, well, the, the Beatles is a really shit name for a band, but nobody thinks about it like that anymore. So give it a few months and this will just, whatever the title is, will be accepted. And oh, nobody yeah. think about well, it. And Die Another Day was the same way. Because um, as I recall, they were a little slow getting that title out. Um, compared with uh, The World Is Not Enough, for example. And like once the title was out, it's like, okay, <laughs> let's go. Um, and, I, and I think that's how it's going to play out here. News about the teaser trailer. Um, one of the MI6 contributors, uh, who can't be named for obvious reasons, has seen a rough cut of the teaser trailer for No Time Ooh, to Die. So we can expect it shortly then. Yeah, and it was still in rough cut, not approved. Um, the two notes about it are, one, there was no real story beats. It was just a lot of shots for the teaser trailer so don't expect okay. to get any hints as to what the plot is going to be from it oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that and to- I, 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 I'm just I'm, I'm interested to, I'm interested interested to see uh, what they've shot and what they've prepared to, to show us but uh, yeah I, I, I don't want to know about the story right. uh, and the second so- bit was the cinematography is amazing and this might be the best looking Bond film ever well, okay. Now, now that's a very impressive. Uh, that's a very impressive statement, considering we've had Freddie Young, yep. <laughs> Jed Moore, yep, both Oscar winners. I forget if uh, Roger Deakins, more Roger Deakins, who finally did win an Oscar, but not for Skyfall, but had been nominated eleven times before he finally won one. Uh, and Linus Sindgren as you know, very well thought of. So that's that catches my attention. Um, yeah. Because that's the thing, you know, the Bond series, whatever whatever else you can say about it, it's had great cinematography um, throughout most of its history. And uh, I know some people like Quantum of Solace more than I do, but like one thing I would not argue about Quantum, it's like there are some things that are incredibly beautifully photographed. Um, and it's, it, it's pretty amazing in terms of photography to it. It, it doesn't even come up in conversation as much as those other films we mentioned, so, or I just mentioned. But um, so if someone thinks this is the best looking Bond film, that's that's something to keep an well, eye out for. Maybe the best looking Bond film. Maybe. But, uh, but, uh, it's in the conversation. Okay, but, but um, with, with the uh, level of the cinematography in the recent films, uh, is it, though genuinely because the cinematography is better or is it because they have access to digital techniques to improve what they've shot now and and, and grade it and so on? I have, because I work in the industry, I have this argument with people all the time about 
give a proper filmmaker, you know, a 60 millimeter camera and some tape and they'll make a better film than some kid with a red camera and all the tools, right? Because it's about no, I, I absolutely, absolutely, absolutely agree. Choosing your angles and all the rest. Of, that's the art, right? Um, but you're right. The science has improved, which has probably enabled things to be done that couldn't be done before. But you still need the right eye, right? Um, the other thing that I want to caveat on that maybe the best looking Bond film ever from the teaser trailer is comedy trailers put the best jokes in the trailer, right? So this teaser may be the best shots that they have so far, right? Um, and the rest of the film might be, that might be it. I mean, you know, there might be nothing more exciting from it, but we'll, we'll okay. see. Right. But um, the feedback was overwhelmingly positive. And uh, do you know what's gone in, into the trailer like that uh, big explosion in, in Jamaica, for example? I imagine that's in there. Uh, no, that, I don't know any more than that. That was, that was the two points where... There's no story plot in the trailer. It's just shots, and the shots may be the best-looking book. Okay. So. Well, and I was just going to say, in terms of the teaser trailer, given the way they just kind of dropped the title this past week, um, I, I'm not really going to try and guess when the teaser trailer is going to be out. Um, the information James just mentioned is new new to me, but, like, you know, the, again, a favorite fan theory is, oh, it'll be out for global James Bond Day. It's like... I'm just not assuming anything like that. I'm just not going to, uh, I'm not going to guess. It'll probably be out when I'm not expecting it. So when it's out, I'll be ready for it, but uh, I'm not going to overthink it. Yeah, I, I, I'm keeping an eye out on the British Board of Film Classification and to uh, see when, right. the, when the um, trailer's been submitted. But uh, Well, that's only if they want to theatrically release it. The- that's right. True. Because the, yeah. the pattern now is to put it out online mm. first. So, yeah, okay. that, that's a, that's a good point which I hadn't considered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and Tuesdays and Thursdays seem to be favorite days, but that I don't think that's you know for every film. But you know, Tuesdays Tuesday does seem to be a popular day. You know, you were talking about the visuals of the film, and I, I actually want to sort of agree with that wholeheartedly that, you know, I was just talking to, I, I think I was talking to Calvin actually recently, and he was saying that, you know, he really was thrilled after he saw that little video that they dropped. Mm. And and one of the things he said, he goes, I love that it's bright and colorful, and thank God, because I, that means the movie will be. And I, I sort of had, again, kind of a cynical view saying, eh, just because that video was bright and colorful doesn't necessarily mean that that it's indicative of what the film is going to be. Um, you know, I mean, I, my feeling from that little short video was that this is something they wanted to put out just to sort of show, look, we're working, look, things are going well, look, everything is fun and great, which is good. But again, I, I we're not cursed. Right. Yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> look, look how, look how happy Craig looks. Look how happy he's getting along with his director. Everything is wonderful. His ankle, his ankle's fine. He's walking very smoothly. He's not, he doesn't have a limp. Exactly. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, but I, I, again, I mean, anybody, any, any, any house could put together a video and, and they could pump up the, the color and put some filters on it. So again, I don't think that's an indication necessarily that that's how the film will look, but, but hearing this is kind of good news that maybe, maybe they are sort of focused on a, a good visually pleasing film finally, because that I, I won't go back in time, but Lord knows the last one could have used a little color. Right. That wasn't Brown. 
Exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> other, other than Brown. Yes. <laughs> I, I remember coming out of Spectre. We went to the prem. We did the premiere, and we came out. And I, I read. I think it was the Guardian review. Gave it five stars, which um, still can't get my head around because the Guardian usually hates Bond. But um, and in the review, the guy said, you know, the, cin- the, the, the cinematography had every layer of a tiramisu. <laughs> but he said he said it as a compliment well Uh, as an aside um the last couple of movies you know i've done posts kind of aggregating you know reviews you know and i've been like very careful not to put spoilers in you know the little bits i include and i put a link but um the one thing I've noticed is that the UK reviews tend to be like a lot more positive than the American reviews. Oh yeah. I follow the American reviews were fairly positive, but not as positive as, as the UK ones. And part of me wonders if like the British film critics, when it comes, when it comes down to it, they feel like, a, you know, they, Oh, they, they feel they need to be patriotic and they have to like, yeah. Do, do you know, Bill, I, I, I don't know if it's that so much as the, that, uh, basically, I think pretty much everybody in the UK is brought up with Bond, and right. you, you watch it. You, you watch it with your, your families, and so it's not so much a, um, a, um, some, a, a question of patriotism as it is that it's just so much in, ingrained into the UK culture that you kind of can't separate yourself from it. Yeah, I remember Christoph Waltz saying after the premiere of um, Spectres, like the Mays will make this a national holiday now. <laughs> <laughs> like the whole the whole of London shut down, you know. Yes. <laughs> so, as a designer, Joe, I mean, what's your take on like how important the cinematography and the look of the films are? Because I I loved your Honor Majesty's review you did recently, and you pointed out, I think you or Scott pointed out that it's maybe one of the most colourful Bond films. Mm. Um, yeah, which I hadn't thought about before, but I was like, that's actually you know that really sat with me that that analysis. Yeah, those those rich, lush purples and the casino scenes and and the uh, the, the hypnotism scenes up at the clinic. I mean, they, yeah, they really did take advantage of color, and I don't think I'd ever seen that really before in a in a Bond film up until till then. And I think the cinematography is incredibly important because I think if you ask, uh, you know, the best example I've got of recent memory is Skyfall, and I think if you ask, you know, most fans, you know. How do you like Skyfall? They will tell you the cinematography in that film is incredible. They all walked away with right. this feeling of like, wow, every location had its own look and it was so vivid and vibrant. And and again, every every place you went had a different feel. Uh, I think that's incredibly important. And, and again, I, I I sort of can't to this day figure out how someone got the memo in Sky in the Spectre saying, uh, do the opposite of that this time. Um uh, <laughs> So yeah, I, I think it's incredibly important and, and wildly sort of underrated sometimes. Well, of course, the Spectre uh, cinematographer <clears throat> had just done uh, Interstellar, and um, Interstellar has like a lot of browns and it's kind of gloomy because it's mm. kind of a dystopian story, and it's like, oh, he's just kind of following along um, with what he was doing for Nolan. I, yeah. Yeah, maybe he wasn't following along what he'd done, but he thought this was colourful after doing that. <laughs> maybe so, maybe so. I mean, there were a lot of shots I liked the way they were framed, Inspector, but 
I have to admit, it was after the first couple of times that I like noticed, yeah, it isn't as colorful as the last movie. It's, it took a while for it to sink into me about that. Mm. Yeah, even though I'm not not really a, a fan of Skyfall, I, I do think the cinematography is superb. Yeah, yeah. It, it's uh, one of its massive strengths for me. Mm. It's almost like somebody got the memo, like you know, this is the Daniel Craig era, and it's tough and gritty and realistic. And to, to someone that translated into to dark and grimy looking film. Yeah, I think the locations didn't help Spectre in that regard because Rome, everything is stone, and then they go to the desert. Um, so it did kind of lend itself to those hues, but they really doubled down on it, didn't they, by grading the film like mm. that way? <clears throat> I think there's actually a VFX, there's a VFX reel of the work that they did in um, Italy uh, with it before and after grading. And oh yeah, they 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 knocked the creams and the browns way up on um, when they were finishing the film from what it was actually shot as. So some other news around the world of Bond, uh, picking it up. Um, we hadn't talked about this before, but Daniel Kleiman's coming back to do the titles. He confirmed. But w- w- was that was that really news? Because I I thought he confirmed. Or I thought he he'd said that he was months ago. Or am I wrong? Um, it was a couple of weeks. I could I could have sworn I'd seen that he'd said that he was back. But okay, all right, me wrong. Not the first time. So be interesting to see what be interesting to see what he does this time because for the Craig era, he's um, he's done a different kind of style and technique um, for each of the titles. Yeah, that's right. Of course, his first one, of course, was uh, for the Craig era was Casino Royale, which was totally unlike anything he had done, um, you know, prior. And um, I thought it was very imaginative. Um, he of course got didn't come back for quantum but then he came back for skyfall which was very effective had a lot of uh, death images um yeah it, i'm curious to see what he's going to do with it I'm, I'm hoping it's a lot better than specter i've loved everything he's done since goldeneye they've all been spectacular skyfall it was funny because i didn't like it at first i thought it was too busy but then i realized after repeat viewings that busyness kind of works because I feel like I, I see something new every time I look at it. Uh, the Spectre one, yeah, not 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 as best. I'm hoping uh, that that seemed to almost go the other way, where it was over simple. Do you think Spectre looked more like a music video than a title sequence? Mm, possibly, possibly. I I was I th- I found it odd that it, there was not a lot of variation on it. Almost hard to say, I guess. But the, even even that the way the whole film seemed to have just one. We talked about the color as opposed to Skyfall that had a lot of different colors and a lot of different styles in the, in the visuals, the inspector just looked so bland. I kind of felt like the whole opening that, that title sequence just like we had one gimmick and we just stuck with it throughout the whole thing and not a lot of, right. not a lot of change. You kept getting the octopus over and over and it's like, yeah, like Oh, here's more. Like we get, right. We get it. Yeah. Yeah. There's something funny about the, the octopus. And I remember uh, sitting in the premiere uh, and, and thinking this and I, uh, 
I, I used to do a lot of scuba diving and uh, now mainly just snorkeling. And uh, so uh, I, and I love to watch octopuses. They're really, really fascinating creatures to, to watch. But uh, I remember looking at the octopus on the screen and thinking, yeah, but octopuses don't move like that at all. <laughs> like snakes, yeah, will be like snakes. It like, yeah, it was like almost. It was more like uh, twenty thousand leagues under the sea, the Disney version from the fifties. <laughs> so the other moving thing this week, Bill, this is one of our pet pet topics, is um, Annapurna. Annapurna, yes. A couple of days ago, did the here's our best and final offer to the banks. Yeah, for eighty to eighty-five cents on the dollar, like take it or leave it. This, it just to sum up, so like uh, Deadline Hollywood reported that Larry Ellison, the father of the CEO of Annapurna, Larry is the you know, co-founder of Oracle, um, and he's been kind of like trying to clean up the financial mess at his daughter's company and offered the banks 80 to 85 cents on the dollar, take it or leave it. And the way the story made it sound, the banks would probably take it. There hasn't been a follow-up since as we record this, but uh, I have the feeling that the banks may protest for a bit, but they'll swallow hard and they'll they'll take it, um, you know, because they still want to get do business with you know one of the richest people in the United States. So at least that's my read on it. Yeah, that's exactly how I saw it too, Bill. And um, what this mean? I mean, if they, if they obviously get their debts cleared or restructured, then it's just business as usual, right? For um, everything else they're doing, and they can hang out long enough for their bond twenty five payday. Right, and and we talked about this a bit on the previous podcast that's been broadcast. That um, I mean, even if Anna Perna, this is what I said. I'll just sum up. Even if Anna Perna were to go into bankruptcy, which it appears there's a good chance they won't, but even if they had, I. I thought that the the two main outcomes would be one, either MGM swallows hard and just buys Annapurna out of United Arts releasing, or two, uh, Universal just says, "Okay, we'll do all the releasing." And you know, because both Universal and MGM have, you know, they both have motivation to get bond. Uh, excuse me, no, no time to die out on the on time. So. Um, I haven't really thought this was going to affect uh, the movie, but based on this week's news, I'm I'm I feel more convinced of that. But once right. again, the whole reason we even have to talk about this is because of MGM's weakness as a studio. Because when they came out of bankruptcy, they didn't have their own distribution, you know, operation, and they still don't. They're right. you know, partners with Annapurna now and releasing movies in the U.S. So. Oh, and let's be quite frank about it. If MGM wanted a stable partner, they could have used Universal for the US or somebody else or Sony. But they decided that they wanted to keep more of the money as a studio and as a distributor. Right. Um, and so did this deal with Annapurna, the weakest distributor probably in the country. Annapurna so, never even had a distribution operation until 2017. Annapurna yeah. started out as a production company. And then they decide, oh, we want to be a studio too. And so then they added a distribution operation and United Artists releasing a big chunk of it includes that Annapurna distribution operation that they put into the joint venture. Um, I may be sounding a little cynical, but um, 
Well, I'm going to say more cynical. If this goes belly up and they have to change plans, it's it's mostly MGM's fault. Yes. For basically being greedy and trying to keep the distribution business. And the the the, the episode we released recently that we recorded last week with AJ about film finances got me thinking. It's the whole distribution model is something born out of the dawn of cinema when you had theaters that were independent. Um, you had film studios um, scattered across the, the world and you needed a company to go out there and take the film on the road for you, yeah. right? Uh, with physical prints and local marketing in the, you know, and I was looking back at some of the exhibitors, um, exhibitors campaign books for the early Bond films recently, because we're doing something on one of the older films. And it was all about marketing stunts that you can do with your local radio station and local newspaper. And that's what the distributor was paid to do. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. With, so things have changed, right? So we now, especially in the States, um, and it's true of most Western countries, there's only a handful of cinema owners now. They're all major conglomerate groups. Um, distribution can be done digitally. You don't actually need prints to be manufactured and shipped anymore. Um, advertising is done nationally and globally, electronically. What the hell do you need a distributor for? Anymore? Yeah, absolutely. It's just like you, you need a um, you need fiber running straight from MGM to um, the whoever owns owns the local cinema um, operations, and that's it. And they, they can distribute well, yeah. it to each of well, them. They actually, they actually ship caddies of hard drives, but you know. And also, it's- back in the old days. You know, um, the studios were part of theater chains. So, like, uh, MGM was part of Lowe's. Lowe's had a theater chain. They, You know, there's a reason MGM made 50 movies, because, like, those theaters before television needed 52 movies, you know, 52 movies right. every year. It's like you, back in those days, you, you know, a movie ran once uh, for a week, and then, you know, some new movie came in. So I think the way to fix the film business is to take that 30% out and and split it between the cinemas and studios and just get rid of distributors because we don't need them anymore. That would make the cinemas profitable again. Studios wouldn't have to have so much of a risk on their return. Problem solved. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> Quick, let's file the copyright on this idea right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, vertical vertical integration, right? Yeah. I mean, it's what you're talking about, Bill. Back in the day, it was everything was vertically integrated, and now it's not. And if 30% of your revenues are going somewhere that's completely superfluous. Yeah, um, I mean, it's like all industries, though. The, the, the people involved in each uh, each uh, link of the chain are resistant to change, and especially if you're a link that's uh, going to be cut out completely. Right. Yeah. Yeah, turkeys don't vote for Christmas, right? So, <laughs> not many of them. Um, the Aston Martin DB5 auction was. Um, in recent, or a few days ago. Yeah, good grief. I, I, I kind of forgot it was on and I got an alert. And um, I think we tweeted this, that every lot up until um, the Aston Martin DB5 went for less than its estimate. And the auctioneers were not looking like they were having a good day. I mean, not very good poker faces um, at all at Sotheby's, at RM. Um, and then, you know, the, the DB5 blew it out with the record-breaking sale. But it, it was absurd, though, wasn't it? Was it... Uh, what the? They were expecting it to get, what... Uh, two, to, two to four. Two to, two to four, and it went, went for seven, was it? 
It was six and change if you included all the fees. Yeah, and for a, for for one of the vehicles that wasn't actually used on film. Yeah. Uh, to go for that amount. Well, uh, I hope whoever bought it enjoys it. You know, I, I've I've sort of been wondering if the DB5 is if we're kind of getting oversaturated with it. It used to be kind of a you know a flat you'd like like seeing Haley's comet go by. You'd see it and you'd, you'd be like, oh wow, that's great. And now it's <laughs> sort of everywhere. Which Haley's DB5. <laughs> the difference with Haley's Comet, Haley's Comet came by every 86 years or whatever it is. <laughs> and the DB5 is like every two or three or four, however long, you know, whatever the intervals, James Bond movies. Uh, yeah, but, but you know, uh, I, I'd be probably happier having one of the cars that they, they're using to shoot uh, Bond 25 Uh that than a real one because um you know one of these replicas uh it doesn't matter really if, if you have a prang in it uh if you if you spend you know six million dollars or whatever on a on a car where are you going to take it what are you going to do with it right <laughs> well it's, it's funny like so in a in a blog post i referred to them as replicas and like i got some I got some pushback. Well, if Aston Martin calls it a DB5, it's a DB5. I said, it's a DB5 with a BMW engine and a carbon fiber body and like totally new uh, suspension parts. It looks like a DB5, but it's like DB5 production ended in 1965 or 66. They haven't made any since then. And yeah, it's, I, it I looks like it. Um, what, what, one, of the, what, one of the things about the... Um, the photos that have come out of Matera is that the the Aston Martin replica Aston Martin. I don't want to fall into that trap with with you on the line, Bill. <laughs> um, that it, I, I, when I first saw it, I wasn't sure if it was a real photo or whether it was CGI because uh, the car doesn't quite look right for some reason. And I, I can't work out whether it's the paintwork or, or something else or whether the proportions are slightly off. Um, but it, and I, I've looked at it and I've looked at it and I've looked at it and uh, I, I can't work it out, but it still doesn't look quite right to me. But in doing that, I, I also noticed that um, there, there's a panel in the roof, uh, so we may expect an ejector seat. Or it's a line that's painted on. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I did wonder about that, but they, they haven't done that previously. So, um, but but I saw so. I also saw a photo of those, and like one of them showed it doesn't have a revolving plate like the Goldfinger car. It's just yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, and also I wonder I I don't know enough about the mechanics of cars to, to know for sure, but like so with Goldfinger, John Steers had to actually cut a hole in the car because in on one of those documentaries on the you know the home yeah that's right yeah he made he he said when he was interviewed uh he said okay guys i'm going to cut this you know he he didn't want anyone else to take the responsibility someone's going to cut a hole in that car he was going to do it and he did um and i wonder if like doing that somehow changed the dimension somehow I, i i i don't know um and so, like, could it be like these replicas don't have a real hole cut in them, and that somehow makes them look slightly different? I, you know, I, I don't know. Was it David? Was it like Uncanny Valley? Looking at that DB five, uh, <laughs> so close to being real that 
but yeah. your mind still knows something's wrong. Yeah, it doesn't it, quite fit right. I, 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 I guess I, 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 I can't put my finger on it. And uh, I, as I said, it may simply be the paint, or, or maybe it was the light it was in, or or something like that. I'm not sure, but it it, it just it just didn't look like a real DB5 to me. And it's not like I'm used to seeing them every day or anything. So. Um, you know, I just I, like every film for the last 25 years. But. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we actually went and did the tally. It was only It's only two films since GoldenEye, including GoldenEye, that didn't have the DB5 involved one way or another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, you put that out the other day, yes? Well, yeah, it was... Yeah. I was it was one of those things that's like, hey, it's got to be, it's, it's not that many. And you sit down and work mm. it out. It's like, it's all but Dino the Day and um, Quantum of Solace. Yeah, it. it's because the the other thing that, that uh, I think is also overused is shaken, not stirred, because it used to be fairly infrequent, even though you knew it was Bond. But um, since, uh, really since uh, Pierce Brosnan took over, it, it's been pretty much in every film. So this goes back to our age-old kind of grump about the iconographies um just being overused yeah it's just kind of falling into into the cliches and uh then it starts you know there's a danger of it becoming a a pastiche of itself right and 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 in that blog post i was referring to a minute ago i was saying i'm kind of ready for it to be retired now and and once upon a time i would never even thought it much less say it and but like i'm just you know, enough's enough. I mean, I mean, okay, if with Skyfall, when it blew up, there was like, at least for people like me, there was like an emotional attachment. It was like a big thing when it blew up. But then like next movie, oh yeah, we're putting it back together. Like, what? Yeah, and, and the, 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 pro- the problem with Spectre there is that at the beginning of the film, it's, it's in pieces uh, still. By the end, uh, Key Branch has put it back together. And it's like, uh, um, we talk... And they and now you know how they did it. They just three D printed it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it's case, a replica. It's a replica, yes. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and but uh, but it, and w- w- in a previous episode we were talking about the the, the time frame over which Spectre took place. I think, or, or maybe it was Skyfall. But uh, you know, and uh, and but did we work out that that Spectre took out place over two weeks or something like um, that? Skyfall was minimum three months. Yeah. Um, because the scene between Bond getting shot in the pre-title sequence and falling off into the water, which, yeah, they, they filmed that again this week. Um, yeah, I know. I, I thought that as well. Um, <laughs> is <it> Skyfall 2? <laughs> Back to the lot. What is it? Back to the chapel, as Mark calls it. Um, uh, uh, and then... The scene where Ralph finds Mallory, you know, his character Mallory meets with then M. Judy and says it's been three months since she lost the drive. So there's mm. a three month gap between him falling off and mm. popping back up again. And then, you know, tack on a week or so or two weeks for the rest of the film. So it's probably four mm. months end to end. And then, then, uh, okay, then, then Spectre, how long do we reckon that? Uh, it, it had to be just a few weeks after the end of Skyfall. Yeah. It's, you know, because they just, yeah. they just found. Um, 
the the remnants of Bond stuff at Skyfall, and Money Penny gives it to him. Uh, but then, then you know, and and you know, it just it seems to go through. Uh, we seem to go through the whole thing at lightning speed, and uh, at the end, there's the Aston Martin all uh, looking pristine and, and new. So yes, uh, exactly. Uh, yeah. So so Q Brand uh, rebuilt it. And so, which would also seem to like uh, dash the fan theory. Oh, that's the same car from uh, Casino Royale. Like, if it's a car from Casino Royale, why is Q Branch rebuilding it? Uh, yeah, and also um, in Skyfall, why did it have an ejector seat and uh, all the machine guns and all that kind of stuff? So, yeah, uh, yeah there's, there's, a, there's a lot that doesn't make sense. And have right-hand drive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I told the anecdote on a previous podcast. I actually like. I actually went to the trouble of calling a, a Aston Martin dealer and asked him, like, could you actually switch the the, the drive from right to left? And the first thing he said to me is like, "Why would you do that?" And I said, well, it's, yeah. it's a, I, I didn't explain wholly, but I gave him a quick explanation. He said, "Well, maybe you could do that, but cost." I said, well, how much would it cost? I don't know, maybe $40,000. And he was like guessing. And he did like, this is like, no one had ever asked him about what it would cost to switch from right hand drive. Yeah, no, but I, 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 remember, I, I remember when that happened, Bill, because I, I, uh, it was me who, who suggested it because somebody told me, and it, it may have been my brother told me that you can actually uh, get Aston Martin to, to switch the, uh, the, the steering wheel. Uh-huh. So you mentioned an interesting thing, David, about the timeline of Spectre, because we never sat down and worked that out. But it does take place shortly after Skyfall, right? Because yeah, yeah, M's, yeah, yeah. You know, the, M's message from Beyond the Grave and the, uh, uh, the remnants of Skyfall, uh, the building. But in the Bond 25 reveal event, Naomi Harris said that Bond 25 takes place five years in real time, and I'm paraphrasing, after the events of Spectre. Meaning okay. that that explains how he's retired and all the rest of it in Jamaica and everything, right? But five years after Spectre isn't five years since 2015. No. Well, yes, yeah, so except it's the kind of uh, fluid time of Casino Royale, a Quantum of Solace, isn't it? it so it's uh, comic book time, but you know uh, where they kind of like be loosey goosey on time elapsed. Uh, something else, because also in those uh, Inspector, you in those documents that survived the explosion at Skyfall, it says Bond was born in 71, which means he's three years younger than the actor who plays him. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, so true. I was wondering if that was an attempt to kind of explain away, in other words, to compress the difference between Skyfall and Spectre. And and actually, when uh, when when Casino Royale first came out, and on their website they had some kind of flash presentation. Yes, they said it was born and, in 1968. And, well, that was actually John, yes. Actually, um, I'm going to get pulled up if I'm wrong, but John Cork, I think, was um, hired to rewrite or to mm-hmm. consult consult on rewriting Bond's history and biography for the reboot of Casino Royale. We have all those documents. And yeah, they rewrote his history to be born in Berlin and all the rest of it. And he was SBS, right? Uh, Special boat service yeah. and all that yeah. kind of stuff. But yeah, they changed. They but it was a reboot of the franchise, so they could completely rewrite his history. Um, obviously, with a nod to Fleming's bio of the character, with mm. the Scottish heritage and all the rest of it. But um, yeah, they totally changed it. I think they learned their lesson in Casino Royale of having the date on a Blu-ray disc 
when he's looking at the security footage. They've stopped doing that now. <laughs> you know, they've stopped putting years and dates on in the films. Right, because all right. Yeah, but but the the, the first the first two uh, Daniel Craig films are really dated by the phones thing because it, it's pre smartphone. Um, well, yeah. also with um, with uh, Quantum of Solace, there's a date on the um, invitation from. Um, from uh, Green, uh, so it says you know his party is in two thousand eight. Well, well, wait a minute. Well, whoa! <laughs> but I thought Casino Royale took place in two thousand six because of that surveillance video, et cetera, et cetera. It's like okay, I know we're getting into into the weeds here. It, it, yeah, it's it's because the the guys who look after security at the hotel they, they haven't worked out how to reset the date. <laughs> <laughs> just wrong. So Casino Royale was actually set in the future. Well, it all comes back, uh, Bill, to your, the complaint you often make, and I agree with, which is if it hadn't have been for Michael G. Wilson yes. saying it takes place five minutes after Casino Royale, none of this would matter. Right. And they made it part of the marketing. That was the thing. This was, yeah, this was oh, a talking well, point. Yeah, you, you you say that, but it, it, the the beginning of of Quantum of Solace makes it clear, really, that it, it's immediately after Casino Royale, because otherwise, why would Mister White be bundled into the boot of Bond's Aston Martin for two years? <laughs> yeah, for two years, yeah. <laughs> what did he do? Every stop every so often, open the trunk. Here, Mister White, here's a banana to eat. Okay, I'm. <laughs> Key Branch has installed a, a little hatch so that he, he can be fed. <laughs> not too, not too different to the crew working in Scotland, right? Really, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. So that wraps up our Bond Twenty Five news roundup and the wild tangents that we find ourselves wandering down to for about an hour uh, we're going to pause it here and in the next episode we'll pick it up again with bill david and joe joining us for the first time talking about some non-news related items um, that those who are avoiding spoilers can enjoy in a separate episode so we'll pick it up again next week I expect you to die. The best of the best to die. I expect you to die. I expect you to die. When you finally see the worst side of me, will finally be eye to eye. I expect you to die. That voice in your ear. They only enslave you You're a piece on a board I bet with my wealth My armies of dreams Your every success Unveils still greater schemes A lake full of acid A drill from the sky If you try to fight me We'll watch your folks die Lasers and saw blades With sharks on standby you to
expect you to die.